Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things that you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how incredibly tired we've been this week for no reason. My God, I have fallen asleep on the couch every night this week, I think, just about at like seven. And then I wake up two hours later, I'm awake for two hours, and then I go back to sleep. Yeah, it's been kind of impressive. I don't sleep normally, like at all. It's disturbing and upsetting because like every once in a while I'll wake up and I'll be three in the morning and I'll hear the sounds of her putting away dishes or running the dishwasher or something. It has not been three in the morning lately. It's been uh, about 1030. Yeah. But it's such a bummer because I fell asleep while we were watching WandaVision and it was so good. I know. I loved it. And Anya from Buffy is on there and that's all I will ever know her as. You look confused. Yes. Wait, she is? Do you not know who the uh, boss bitch of the neighborhood is? (gasps) That was Anya? Yeah. It didn't look like her. Oh my gosh. I met her once. Ooh. I did, briefly. It was at a con. I met um, her and Nicholas Brendan and the guy who played Rory on um, Doctor Who, and I'm blanking on his name right now. But yeah, she is so tiny. And Nicholas Brendan gives good hugs, and I really hope he's doing better these days, because this was right before all that went down. But she, I'm almost 5'8". She went up to, like, my elbow. Oh, my God. She was so little. Like, we we took a photo, and she's, like, up on her toes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Anything else happened this week? I don't think so. Uh, Yeah, my office moved, and I've just been kind of in a state The squirrel! Oh, okay. So, uh... My library is closing for renovations, so they moved us to a different county building. Mm-hmm. And last week on Thursday, uh, we get in, and one of my coworkers had a squirrel at her desk. Just like, not like... Like <laughs> Sitting there wild... on the computer doing its yeah, job. No, just a wild squirrel had gotten in the building, and it was at her desk. So naturally, there was some brief panic, and oh, that's cute, because we are, you know, we're all animal people. And, like, basically, like, Disney princesses because animals just come to us. Mm-hmm. And so we, like, the facilities people, apparently squirrels get in this building all the time. We didn't know that. <laughs> but they set up a trap and they caught the squirrel alive and they released it outside. They promised Austin that they released it alive outside. Mm-hmm. But since animal control was there, I'm a little iffy on that. Oh, no, it's... They they released it outside. It was like, yeah, that's like this happens a lot. We just release them outside. It's and then like, they come right back in. It's like, what are we going to do? They have a job to do. Well, it turns out, though, uh, that the squirrel wasn't just in the building for us. It had gotten in the day before, and they were trying to find it, and no one told us, <laughs> because it jumped out of a trash can at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just living its best squirrel life. So, yeah, we have uh, you know, a squirrel problem at the new building, but, you know, that's... Yeah, could be worse. Could be possums it could, or, 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 or raccoons. Could, it could be your house, like happened to my mom when a squirrel like busted through a, a wall. <laughs> or it could be overrun with raccoons, like in Pawnee, Indiana. I love raccoons though, they and are. possums. Yes, Austin does not care for possums. Po- okay, I'm kind of like possums. You see photos of them and stuff where they are, are cute. They're so cute all the time. But I've encountered like the real, like rough, like street possums we get around here that are just hissing nastiness and mange. They don't get mange. They don't, they don't have enough hair to get mange get to some, begin with. We get some rough looking possums. Yeah. Think about where we live. They have to take on like owls and shit. And, and our neighbor who ki- thinks we should cull all the coyotes because he's older than them. Owls, coyotes, children, all of the awful things of the suburbs. We caught a possum once we were trying to get our cat and it ate the entire catnip plant. And it turns out they play dead just like um, 
or no, raccoons play dead like possums. We caught one of those too. But this guy, I get out there and he just does this big possum smile at me. And I was like, okay, bro. And I opened it and I walked out because I figured he's playing dead. He stayed in that position for an hour and a half complete with the smile because I had a a, a nanny cam on him. Yeah, uh, po- apparently possums get super high on catnip too. Yeah, that was hilarious. Um, I believe you go first this I week. I get to go first this week. I'm excited. So... I've got bad news for everybody. We didn't win the Mega Millions. Oh, we tried. We tried. And by tried, I mean we bought a couple of tickets. And you know, it's probably for the best because I would have blown all of the money on pad- podcasting like Rebecca Harkness did with the ballet. We'd have a yeah, I'd be in charge encrest- of the money. Jewel encrusted recording studio with several works by Picasso on the wall. See, that sounds like something I would do, not you. So now we need a new scheme to make money, mm-hmm. and we were a little bit late to invest in. In GameStop. Hey, I invested in Express because I think that once enough people start getting vaccinated, people are going to have to go back to work and they're going to need affordable and cute clothing. Yeah, we bought a share. I also invested three whole dollars in Delta Airlines because I actually read some stuff and I was and I did, and it was determined that that was the best airline to invest in at this point in time. Three whole dollars. Well, you know, I don't know how to stock market. She may be investing in the stock market, but I am going with the very realistic and practical and time tested method. Of finding a famous lost treasure. Sure. And I've decided on the perfect one. Forest fan already got found, Austin. It's better than that one. Okay. So it's worth about $500 million. Uh, it's only been missing for about 75 years. So, you know, it's the trail's not completely cold. Is, are you looking for a D.B. Cooper's money? No. And best part is this treasure was stolen by the Nazis. So... I can put on an Indiana Jones hat and hum the theme song the entire time I'm doing this. It's perfect. It's It was called The Eighth Wonder of the World, and I'm going to try and find the famous Lost Amber Room. Have they looked in Antarctica yet? No, they have not looked in Antarctica Because yet. we know the Nazis were like, let's go to Antarctica, because that's where we're going to reach the aliens or whatever it was they were doing. Oh, I'm glad you've got theories on where this is, because I've got my theory on where it is. I don't know anything about this, so... Okay, well, first of all, we're going to start off with a, a few basics. Like we all learned in Jurassic Park, Amber is just a petrified tree sap that sometimes has bugs and dinosaur DNA in it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff we didn't learn about it. Like, Amber floats. Uh, most of the amber we find isn't mined out of the ground. It's actually, like, gathered up in the Baltic because it's just floating on the surface of the water and they can gather it up in nets. I'm sorry. I'm just imagining every person I know named Amber in this situation rather uh, than... <laughs> uh, hopefully your friend Amber floats. Does that mean she's a witch or a duck? Uh, it means she weighs more than a church or less than a church. <laughs> Okay, Amber does not weigh more than a church, unless it's like a weird little like micro church, like a nativity. It's one scene. of those nativity scene church, or one of those uh, Christmas town churches with all, all. Those are so cute, but they're like thousands upon thousands yeah. of dollars. Like they're more than having a model train set. It's crazy. But of course, you know you can charge more for Christmas stuff because you know Christmas. It's like it's like saying it's like oh this space is for a wedding. It's like that's an extra five thousand dollars, please. Mm-hmm. So if Taylor Swift won't pu- purchase our plumbing, do you think she'll buy me a Christmas town? I don't really want one, but <laughs> well, she did that. She did do a Christmas album. She might have a Christmas town left over from that. She'll True. just let us borrow. Okay. All right. So uh, and amber, uh, many ancient peoples because hey, amber is this ro- rock that floats. They thought it had mystical properties and it had protective or curative powers. Like they thought, oh yeah. Put this amber amulet around your baby's neck and it won't have teething pains anymore. That's still a thing. Still a thing. Um, I'm going to tell you, though, Pliny the Elder... Hey, Pliny! Pliny determined that amber had no practical uses. Pliny. 
Yeah, uh, everything else has practical uses. He talked about he observed it, it's like, hey, this is just hardened tree sap. It's not magical. It doesn't do anything, and any magical attributes attributed to it are just frivolities and falsehoods spread by the Greeks. This is the opposite of the Pliny we have come to know and love. So you know it has. Is to it be- because everybody else thought it was magic and it pissed him off? No, I think he did. He did his research, and for once, he was right. It's like, hey, this isn't magic. So Pliny got one right. Pliny got everything right. We just are refusing to admit it. And another thing we didn't learn about Amber, which because it's just hardened tree sap, this shit is highly flammable. (laughs) So fun Amber facts for you. Also, another note, because you might not be filling with with rooms. This is, in fact, not related to the Tommy Wiseau classic, The Room, or the uh, Oscar nominated Room, which confuses the daylights out of me because I thought they were the same movie briefly. When we went to see Room, were you expecting to see Tommy Wiseau? I was! I was so excited. And then it was like tragedy and kidnapping and abduction and awfulness. It was an excellent movie, but we have watched, let's just put it, we have seen The Room five or six times. We have seen Room once because we can't handle it any more than that. Yeah. So let's talk, let's put the two together, Amber and Room, and talk about the Amber Room now. So the work on the Amber Room began in 1701. Sophia Charlotte uh, wanted her husband, King Frederick I of Prussia, to make a fabulous attraction that people, specifically royal people, no peasants, would travel hundreds of miles to come see. So they hired uh, Andreas Schluter to design a Baroque-style room of carved amber panels with gold leaf and mirrors. So that sounds like uh, the Trump penthouse. It really is. This is... Okay, yeah, Baroque is like everything is like curly and covered in gold leaf and very fancy and overworked and gaudy and tacky as all shit by our standards. But it's also a beautiful piece of art. So it was, you know, first installed in the Berlin Palace after it had been worked on for a long time by master amber carvers and like people from all over Europe, but not France, uh, worked on it. Fuck you, France. Yeah. Although I'll tell you, have you seen the pictures of the French working at, I think it was the Louvre, saving the artwork from the Nazis? Maybe if they'd involved the French in this, this never would have happened. Oh, we're going to get to that, actually. So uh, it was first installed in the Berlin Palace. But when the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, came to Berlin to form an alliance with the Prussians against Sweden, because did you know that Sweden, the country that brought us ABBA and IKEA, uh, they were once an aggressive and warlike empire that subjugated the Balkans, advanced warfare with their improvements to cavalry, artillery, logistics, and they changed it from fighting in squares, in which everyone was like marching in squares, to uh, firing muskets in lines. So they advanced warfare a lot. Mamma Mia. And Mamma Well, Mamma Mia hadn't happened yet. That was a logical reaction to what you said, Austin, as well as a song by ABBA. Well, here we go again. My, my. <laughs> and we've done ABBA conversations here before, haven't we? <laughs> Many times. Maybe maybe if there's some money, money, money in it, this would be, a, we, we wouldn't have to worry about talking about finding treasure because we'd, we'd be in the rich man's world. Okay. That was a stretch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, they were, a, Sweden was also on the verge of being uh, one of Europe's like great power for centuries. And they were like, everyone was t- terrified of Sweden for a bit. So yeah. So back to our story. So uh, Peter the Great loved the Amber Room so much. Frederick Wilhelm I, who was King Frederick's son, gave it to him as a gift, sealing this treaty against Sweden. <laughs> so everybody was against you, Austin. Yep. 
I mean, there is kind of the running joke that uh, Sweden are the are the assholes of Europe, which I can see it. I know my family. <laughs> Well, I think it's just because, like, you guys and the Finnish are like, mm, I don't want to hug you. While the rest of Europe is like, we greet with a kiss. And I'm like, I could, I can get on board with what you guys do. Not the greeting with a kiss thing. Yeah. Just, just, just leave us, leave us alone with our Vikings. I don't know. I'm bad at history. Why am I doing this podcast? <laughs> so, uh, the, the Tsar moved it to the Winter Palace where it stayed there for a while. And then later, Catherine the Great moved it to St. Petersburg to, like, her palace. But the room she moved it to was much too large for these amber panels, so she spent the next 10 years expanding it. At the end, it was close to 600 square feet of amber, and it used almost six tons of it. So if it floats, it's not a heavy situation. It's not very dense. So six tons of amber is a lot of amber. Huh, and they managed to steal this. Yes, they did. Are we sure they didn't just use one of the invisibility force fields they were trying to build? No, because Captain America stopped that technology from making it into the general theater. Learn your history. Was it Captain America or was it Dean Winchester? Ooh. Uh, Is Dean Winchester Captain America? Have we ever seen them in the same place? They both have really chiseled abs and Captain America is wearing a mask, so he could be Dean Winchester. Yeah, the one, like, the Chris Evans version that we see could just be an alter, alter ego because they should all have that anyway exactly whoa it's layers deep so yeah she spent 10 years expanding it used six tons of amber and the final product was breathtaking because uh they set it up with mirror and candlelight so everything just lit up and it looked brighter and larger than it was and because the amber is translucent and it was backed by gold leaf and mirrors the entire place seemed to glow and just emit light. This sounds like a nightmare to me. Oh, no, it's by all accounts, it was gorgeous with this carved amber and just But stuff. have you met me? That's true. You would be freaked out because you hate art. <laughs> I don't hate art. I hate mirrors. This whole place is fucking haunted. Yeah. And of course, uh, Catherine the Great used it as her personal meditation room. Surrounded and, by ghosts. And everything was great. It even made it through the Russian Revolution unharmed, unlike the Russian royal family. But then World War II started, and, well, uh, the Nazis were uh, looting art all over Europe. Yes. Uh, hundreds of thousands of pieces of art are still missing. Yeah, it is interesting that in school, all we ever learn about is the human casualties, which I'm not trying to underplay at all. But we don't learn about the physical, like, structural or artistic casualties. We also don't learn about, like, the weird shit they were doing that was just ancient aliens would be on board with. Like, we only learn about this one specific aspect of what they did when what they did, they couldn't have taken over as much as they did without these other things. Yeah. It wasn't just civilian casualties, because as we've proven in every war, that's a minor thing to us. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when Germany invaded Russia, uh, they tried to get art out. Russia tried to get art out of reach of the conflict so it wouldn't be taken by the Germans because they knew they'd already taken they were taking art. That was a thing that was happening at this point. It's like, OK, we got to move all of our precious artworks out of here, because in addition to not only stealing art, they were destroying pieces of art they determined were undesirable or unvaluable, basically work by not white people and mm -hmm. by Jews. So anything like that, they were destroying. So Russia was trying to get all of their work out of reach of the Germans. But the Amber Room weighed tons and was pretty delicate because Amber, it's dry. It crumbles like it was old at this point. It's like they couldn't move it quickly and safely. And so they decided they were going to hide it. They covered it in wallpaper. So it looked just like a boring room or they got it out. 
it didn't work. The Germans found it in about 36 hours. Kind of like what they did to houses in the 80s. And now people are starting to take down the wallpaper and realizing the houses are actually beautiful. Or take, it's like, oh my gosh, look at underneath this carpet. It's hardwood floors. And what is this giant stain that is in the shape of a body? It's a body. So yeah, uh, once the Germans found it, they pa- they packed it up and moved it to Koningsberg, which is now Kaliningrad. How? They had time. The Russians just didn't have time. They packed it up in crates. They moved like it. Like they disassembled it and... Disassembled it, moved it, and reassembled it. Because it was all just amber on panels. So they were able to take down these panels and move them even though they were bulky and weighed tons. They had the time to do it safely because the Russians were in a hurry and they couldn't. So yeah, they got moved to, to there. They set it up as an installation in this castle. It was on display. And it sat there... Uh, for a while because Germans were proud of this because it was originally made by for Ger- by Germans so they assumed this was art for Germans and they needed to steal it back for part of their cultural heritage sure yeah yeah Nazis using a bad a bad string of logic I can't believe it mm-hmm. so a few years oh dude am I doing my second Nazi story in a row what was last week <laughs> uh, the beer hall push I'm yeah. doing my second Nazi story in a I am the History Channel. Everything comes back to Nazis. Everything is Nazis. Like, now, next stuff gonna... from before Nazis also came down to Nazis, just with different names. And same thing now. Oh, so man. I'm hitting uh, Pliny and Nazis. I'm hitting all of the classics. Two very different things. Very yeah. different things. But yeah. And a few years later, um, the war wasn't going so hot for Germany. And they were losing, and Russia was taking back territory and, like, you know, getting into it. And Russia uh, made it all the way back to Konigsberg, and they were about to take it. So the Ru- so the Germans decided they were going to pack up and move the Amber Room again and get it out of there. Uh, and that's where we lose track of what happened to it. We don't know where it went. Uh, okay. Six tons of carved amber panels worth half a billion dollars gone. Do we know who was involved with moving it? No. There's a lot of lost records. We don't know what happened. The Nazis were moving it. We're not sure where. Stuff was... The city was under siege at this point. They were trying to get out. We don't know what happened to it. There's a few theories about what happened to this. One theory is that Stalin knew this was going to happen. So before the Germans even stole it the first time, he made a fake replica of it. And that's what the Germans stole. And really, Stalin hid it somewhere in Russia. There is That, no would, have, ev- that would have been taken care of by now. Yeah. There is zero evidence to support this theory. Some theorize that the Nazis packed it up and hid it somewhere in the area. Like, every few years, you'll hear a story about, how, or like, you know, a treasure hunter or an archaeologist is convinced that they found evidence that was hidden in a cellar somewhere that's been buried, or in this mine, or in this quarry, or it's like, you know, we have an account of them moving crates to this area where there's this mine, so it must be buried in here, so they're trying to find it in these places. They haven't found it yet. Is this the same time that crazy doctor moved to Argentina? It's Argentina, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Around the same time, but this wouldn't have been him. Uh, there, you know, this and this is not completely outlandish that they might find it like this because they have found stuff hidden by Nazis in mines and caves and in like buried, hidden cellars and places. It's not impossible. But also, as another note, it's if you do find like uh, stolen Nazi artwork, it's almost impossible for the original owners to get it back now because yeah. it's beyond the statute of limitations. And usually the finder can just keep it. And whenever it goes to court, it usually goes in favor of whatever museum or person or buyer has since gotten it because it's past the statute of limitations. Yeah, I've read about that. It's like people whose it's art belonging to people whose, you know, relatives died in the Holocaust. And they're like, it literally has her name engraved on it. 
Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, but it's the museums now. You should have done something about that 50 years ago. So, yeah, it sucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, it hasn't been found in one of these caves or in a mine or anywhere yet. There's another theory that it was loaded onto a boat or a U-boat, which is a submarine. To go to Argentina with that terrible doctor. That got, but whatever that boat was, got sunk somewhere in the Baltic Sea. And the Amber Room is, the Amber Room is now sitting at the bottom of the sea. Where maybe Ariel has found it by now, but I don't think so. It's disassembled. In crates. In crates. Well, the crates would have broken apart by now. Yep. And Maybe. it would not have stayed in one piece. So we'd be having amber floating at the top from it by now. Yeah. So it that is possible. They have like, they have like found some, they have identified sunken boats that they know left that area, but it's in deep enough water and it's you know, difficult to explore wrecks. It's, they don't know, they, they know that there is cargo on it, but they don't know if that cargo contains the amber room. And it's going to be a long time before this is broken up enough for amber to start floating the surface. So it might be in one of those ships, but there are hundreds of sunken ships in the Baltic Sea from this era that we would, it's a crapshoot to even, if it's on one of those, we might not be able to find it, or it might have made it further out, or we don't know. Basically, our submarine technology needs to get way better first. And it's, again, but it's, it might be a good thing if it's in one of these boats, because Amber survives pretty well underwater. It's like... It's not going to get like too damaged by water. So this is kind of a good spot for it to be in if it is. So maybe. But uh, one big clue we've had about it was in 1997, a piece of the Amber Room showed up for auction in Germany. Uh, the German police investigated and they found out it was only this one bit. And their fa- the family that owned it had said their father had taken it because from when he was help packing things up for the Nazis. He was a Nazi or was he, he a Nazi soldier? Okay. And he had uh, he had basically looted, he had this piece of the room and he claimed that they were packing it up to be loaded onto a ship and he took it for himself. Uh, like, so what do we mean by a piece? It is just a, a small like piece of artwork that was in the Amber Room. Okay. But unfortunately, he had died years before this auction was discovered, so they couldn't really interview him for more information about what happened. They just had what he had told his family about this piece. So we don't know if anything about that is true because we can't verify any of it. Um, yeah. So, uh, but unfortunately, the most likely situation is that it was destroyed when the Allies took the city. Amber is flammable, and the city, and more specifically the castle it was in, was firebombed. Uh, and the Soviets also bombarded the castle very heavily with artillery fire when they were taking the city. Doesn't Amber melt, though? It burns. Oh, okay. It, like, full-on burns. It's tree sap. It burns up into ash. Okay. Now, there is a chef who is employed at the castle who says he witnessed the wing of the castle where the crates were being stored, the way that they packed it away in. He witnessed it burning down. A Soviet investigator uh, in a declassified report confirmed that there were burned remains that could have been the hinges and fixtures from the Amber Room in this destroyed wing. But the investigator later recanted his story that he thought he thought he had found the burned remains and the Soviets closed down this area for investigation, and it the place was eventually demolished and built over. So, so kind we have of this... like how they're like they just announced, oh no, Dietlov Pass. It was just a tiny avalanche. Mm-hmm. Shh. Yeah. So it was not an avalanche. It, there might be some cover up, and not that they found it and they wanted to keep it for themselves because they owned it and it's a national landmark. They think it was to save face because they didn't want everyone realizing that they're idiots who destroyed their own national treasure mm-hmm. in this taking of the city. Which, it, yeah. But and also around this time when they when he recanted it, the Russians started building a replica of the Amber Room because it, which you know. Maybe it's like, oh, yeah, we destroyed it. 
they built, they decided they were going to build a new one. And they just didn't want to look. They wanted to save some face in the international, you know, scene. Mm-hmm. So they, it took them actually 24 years to build the replica of it. It was completed in 2003. And it took so long, mostly because amber carving was quite literally a lost art. Because by modern tastes, amber is kind of tacky. And it seems like something Donald Trump would have in his bathroom. Mm-hmm. So it looks like I'm going to need to find a new treasure to try and find one that's slightly less incinerated and so you so you go with it's incinerated i'm pretty sure it's incinerated but i've got another theory that no one else thought of let's go back to when i talked about tommy was and the room Mm-hmm. Now, Tommy Wiseau has a strange accent. Maybe we don't know what it is because it's a Balkans accent. Maybe. And Tommy Wiseau found the Amber Room. Actually, That's where the, his the name of the movie doesn't make any sense. Exactly. There is no like room in which this movie mm-hmm. happens. I'm thinking it's a subtle nod of the fact that Tommy Wiseau made his fortune by finding and selling the Amber Room, and he used it to fund his movie, and he named it the Room as a subtle nod to where he got his fortune. This makes the most sense, actually. It really does make the most sense. I read the book by um, his friend who played Mark, and he doesn't even know where Tommy is really from. Like, he's getting, you know, he got a couple of different stories. And, you know, Tommy can identify as whatever, wherever he wants to identify is from. But this makes a lot of sense. I think he's from the Balkans, and he's trying to cover up the fact that he found the Amber Room. And he sold the Amber Room. But But wouldn't we have found the Amber Room if he had sold it? Not if he had sold it in pieces. But we found a piece of it that was sold because we were able to recognize it. Oh, but it was a like a piece of art that wasn't the amber from the amber room. It was just some artwork that was in the amber room. So what did he do with the remaining artwork from the amber room? I don't know. Maybe it's in his apartment. Maybe. Along with all of his merch. Along with all of his merch. You might, maybe uh, everybody just order some merch from Tommy Wiseau and you might get lucky and a piece of his vast treasure of artwork that he can't sell yet will fall in there and he won't notice and you will get a priceless treasure. Wait, isn't the Statue of Limitations up on this too, though? Yes, it is. So he can safely do whatever he wants with it. Yes, he can. Tommy cut- Wiseau, we got your back on this. Cut us in, man. Just just cut us in for that good advice. Mm-hmm. Our great legal advice based on our zero legal expertise. <laughs> so yeah, that is the Amber Room and I'm going to have to find a new treasure to try and find. Thanks a lot, Mega Millions. So are you ready for questions? Sure. All right. Will the fact that Amber floats be on the test? Yeah. Will the fact that Pliny thought Amber was bullshit be on the test? It should be. Anything about Pliny should be on a test. Will the fact that Sweden had an empire be on the test? No, we don't like to talk about Sweden. And will the fact that the Amber Room was probably destroyed by mistake be on the test? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was my little piece on a lost treasure. That was kind of funny. That's a garbage truck. Zumbi must be so excited. Our cat loves garbage trucks. She will run to the window to watch the garbage trucks go by. <laughs> she's a toddler. It's amazing. Yeah. But she's actually, she stopped doing that. So she must be over her garbage truck phase. Uh, she's probably asleep on the bed right now, actually. She's Speaking a- of national treasure, you got Nicolas Cage all over I do your have, notebook. I do have a Nicolas Cage notebook. I'm holding it up to the microphone like you can see it. <laughs> All right. So me today. You today. uh, Austin and I bonded over our mutual love of horror movies and bad movies and food. But horror movies was a big part of it. Um, My last relationship, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies. It was a very healthy relationship. Because he was a little scaredy cat who couldn't handle being afraid. Yeah. He'd be like, it's stupid. I don't want to watch it. And then we watched one together and he like freaked out for two weeks afterwards. So I like have more than made up with it, made up for it since I've been with Austin and and it's been great. Um, Now I'm going to be talking about why we might like horror movies 
and I by we I mean the royal we, just not not just the two of us, but people in general. Um, and this is actually a massive topic, like what we always hear about. It's the release of like, positive chemicals in your brain. No, I mean not no, but no. <laughs> um, it's a massive topic. So if this interests you, do some research. There are so many scholarly papers out there, guys. If you have not gone to scholar.google.com, you are missing out. And if you find something that interests you, you can go onto your library website and bother them into making you have, making you copies of these things if I, you can't do it. I spend hours a week on Google Scholar trying to find like the right citation for people who don't know how to cite things. It's a lot of my job. And do it. It's fun. Yeah. I um, Austin texted me the other day from upstairs and was like, thank you for knowing how to cite things because I do a lot of research for my job. Um, you guys don't have a DOI section on there, though. We do not. That would make it so much easier. Like people would go, oh, DOI. I see that right here. I should put it here. You just have ISBN for articles. Yeah, there's the ISBNX, which is used for like magazines. But it's not used for this kind of stuff. I know. It's just just But I just copy and paste it into the notes. I copy and paste it into the notes for you, which I hope helps. So I'm gonna be talking about the nature of fear, how it affects us at different ages, how personality types affect enjoyment, what other psychological and physical things affect whether or not we like it, and how horror movies affect mental pathology. Because people, just like with video games, like to say, it turns you into a villain. No, it doesn't. But then explain how we got to be so evil and mean-spirited. Oh, that's right. We're just we're just mean. Yeah. Uh, so psychologists aren't actually in agreement about what fear is. Some believe that we are evolutionarily predisposed to be afraid of certain things, which I talk about on our cellular memory uh, epigenetics episode. Others think that it is 100% social and cognitive conditioning. Others believe it's a combination of the two, which is kind of where I lie, because we know for a fact that from birth, like babies are afraid of, of being dropped. So they cry if you set them down too fast. And they're afraid of like strangers. And why wouldn't you, why would you know to be afraid of these things if it, there wasn't something to it? But I mean, you aren't born being afraid that a chihuahua is going to bite you. That's something that has to like happen. I think it should be afraid because man, big dogs are always like happy and dopey most of the time. And they know how to say, hey, stay away from me. But chihuahuas will sneak up to you, act like they're your friend and bite you in the ass. I like chihuahuas. <laughs> I feel I feel them on a spiritual level, though. So regardless of what causes fear, we do know that fear and particularly fear in horror movies is directly connected to disgust, which is kind of a stronger emotion in a way. And phobias are also connected to disgust, which is why so many horror movies play on phobias. So when we think of clowns, they show up in a lot of movies or spiders show up in a lot of movies. Blood is a major phobia, shows up in a lot of movies. Snakes, these things that are well-known common phobias. That's what shows up in horror movies. Or blood-soaked clowns that are also spiders that shoot snakes out of their hands. Actually, that, with the exception of the snakes, is how a certain horror movie ends. Oh yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. It is, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Um, So I think we can all agree that fear is supposed to be a negative emotion. It makes us know when we're unsafe. It doesn't feel great to feel unsafe, but it is there to get us out of a dangerous situation. People love to get judgy, though, when it comes to horror movies. Why do you seek out watching a movie that's supposed to cause a negative emotion? Well, why do you enjoy The Notebook? I I told you about my experience going to see a Nicholas Sparks movie in theaters, right? No. There was not a moment like from the previews to the credits where you could not hear someone crying. Yeah. And sadness is also a negative emotion. Yeah. 
Uh, and I would argue that it's a more negative emotion because it doesn't it doesn't spur you to act the way that fear and anger can. Now, I'm not saying they always spur you to act in a good way, but at least you're doing something. Well, I mean, sadness has definitely like spurred me to act and spurred me to action, which like, you know, I ate an entire container of ice cream mm-hmm. or I started listening to sad music. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't make you any more productive, though. No. So what exactly is a horror movie? The key element is disgust, not fear. Any movie can cause fear at some point during it. So we go back to the notebook. There's the part where he's climbing the uh, the wheel thing, the, uh, the Ferris wheel. That's going to freak you out if you're afraid of heights or if you're like me and literally afraid of Ferris wheels. I am terrified of them. Yep. That's fear. That's not disgust, and though. Of course, you're talking about like also jump scares to causing fear, like just the the dog barks suddenly and like jumps yeah. into the camera that's fear but that's like that's just a cheap that's a cheap scare yeah i decided not to go into that because yeah, it's a whole ju- other thing jump scares um, are stupid stop doing it, jump, jump scares, scares I, I read an interview with a uh, theater uh, film and media I, I actually quote him later but he directs a college program and he's like when used effectively and sparingly they can be good for the film but when your whole movie is jump scares you've gone cheap and that's also why he's that's why I think that horror movies aren't taken seriously by award shows, despite the fact that a lot of them are truly excellent films. So disgust. Disgust has to be a central emotion in the film. Many people will argue, will argue that a horror movie has to have a monster. And it doesn't necessarily mean a ghost or a demon. It could be a human who is so monstrous that they are no longer really human. Like Glenn Close in The Devil Wears Prada. Yes. And that they need to have some kind of supernatural power, not just necessarily I'm a ghost and walk through walls, but I'm Hannibal Lecter and I can read you better than you can read yourself. And it seems supernatural. Or I'm Glenn Close and I'm somehow managing Vogue without actually doing anything in The Devil Wears Prada. That movie really scared you, didn't it? Is, it? it scared me so much. That also wasn't Glenn Close. What? That was Meryl. Oh, I am so sorry, Glenn Close. Yeah, that movie is actually why I don't like Meryl Streep. She's really scary. Um, Apparently, she's a kind of method actor. And so off camera, she was being mean to Anne Hathaway the whole time. And you don't get to be mean to Anne Hathaway. No, she ruined her voice in for Les Miserables. You can't be mean to her. Others will say, no, there doesn't need to be a monster. It just needs to have the disgust factor. Because think of Blair Witch Project. At no point do we actually know there is a monster. At no point. Yeah. It's implied that there might be something. Or um, there are a few, like, bird box also. Oh, yeah. You never... The, the point is, you never see what it is. Yes. Although um, the book is a little different with that. Yeah. And uh, awful. Everything about it is awful. In my totally uninformed opinion, horror movies need to have something supernatural about them. Like, actually supernatural, not Hannibal Lecter-level supernatural. Slasher movies and thrillers, if you ask me, are not horror movies, even if they have an element of disgust. Because if they were horror, why do they need to be called something else? We don't call The Exorcist a demony movie. It's a horror movie. Um, if you haven't seen The Exorcist, go turn us off, watch it. We'll be we'll be here. Yeah, you can pause podcasts. I mean, yeah. we'll we'll even wait for a second for you to do so. Same thing with The Omen. If you haven't watched that, I haven't cool. seen The Omen. I know, and I'm very disappointed in you as a person. Yeah, and it's not like I dislike slasher movies and thriller movies. I mean, I'm not a big fan of slashers. Oh, I love slasher movies, but uh, I do think, and I do think there's a gray area. So if we look at Halloween, and it's three thousand years old, I'm not giving you a spoiler because you've had your chance. Norm, like for the first hour and a half of the movie. That's a slasher movie. But then at the end, he's gone. And he's been shot like 17 times at this point. And he just walks off. And now yeah. they've made 
12 more movies or something. I think it now becomes a horror movie because this guy should be dead, which clearly means he is some kind of paranormal or supernatural being. But so is Jamie Lee Curtis because she has died in every single one of these movies somehow. Um, also, she's a boss bitch and like, I'm, yeah. on, I'm on board. Um, and then there's Scream, though. That is a slasher movie. If Ghostface had turned out to be a demon, then yes, it would be a horror movie. But that is a slasher movie. And all of them are amazing. And I'm so excited for the next one to come out. And the TV show is also great. And then Psycho. Psycho is a psychological thriller. It is not a horror movie because at no point does anything supernatural happen. And again, you guys have had literally like 50 years to see this one. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, but that's my thought on it. That's not everyone's. Um, so then let's take a look at, you know, why people like or dislike them and why should we why we should allow that to happen or not. So we're going to start talking about kids. I was reading an article that said the kids who experience scary things in movies, like Bambi's mother dying, um, have a couple of different things that happen. Either they're the ones who get really, 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 really scared and can't handle them, or they're the ones who are kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, there are the few who enjoy it a little too much. And those are the kids you got to watch out for. Um, Not the ones who are like, I like the scary movie. I want to watch the scary movie. It's I really relate to the hunter. That kid. Mm-hmm. Speaking as a child, like who whose parents basically let me watch anything because we'd go to the library and I just check out whatever I wanted and no one stopped me. And as I remember, like some movies like did not phase me at all. It's like, oh, OK, it's a monster. Oh, OK. Yeah, I get it. But like child's play, like the fact that it was a talking toy that came to life, kill stuff like something about that got to me. And I'm still a little spooked out by creepy toys. So for me, I could watch any movie or TV show and be fine. If I read something, my brain went overboard into the fiction versus not fiction kind of I'll talk about in a second. So I actually asked my mom's my mom to ban me from reading Goosebumps books because I wanted to be cool and I wanted to read them. My mom was not the kind to say, no, you can't read books. You can't read any of these books. That's bad. But I also didn't. I'm a really bad liar. So I couldn't tell my classmates that my mom had banned me from reading them if I hadn't actually been banned. <laughs> so I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. I don't want. And she goes, Maybe we should talk about you not reading them anymore. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Tell me I can't read them because (laughs) it won't be a lie. Because I would cry. You're such a goody two shoes. I would cry every time I read those books. Now I read them. I'm like, what the fuck? But (laughs) I was never scared by goosebumps. I thought they were funny. I I had a hard time. I I had severe anxiety. Severe anxiety, um, which had compounded by about the age of seven into something completely different. And I had a hard time with fiction versus reality because I would get very I had a very vivid imagination. So I'd read these books and there is no filter in my brain. So I would read these books and they become very real to me. So one of the things they say that is the reason kids can't handle these is overly empathetic kids. Now, the way they phrased it was interesting, though, because they phrased it as they didn't feel for the characters. They were putting themselves in the character's shoes. What if this happened to me? I'm like, that sounds like a narcissist, not an empath to me. But okay. But a big one is that kids up to about age eight have a hard time distinguishing fiction and reality. And I remember that. I remember it so clearly because I remember reading a book and thinking, I don't act like this character, but this character is a normal person. Therefore, I must be not I must not be normal and I need to act like this character. (laughs) Yeah, I was about seven. The thing is, regardless of if you've got a kid who is a scaredy cat about these or is not, watching these movies is actually a good thing. Now, I'm not saying you should put your kid down in front of it and make them watch this movie. 
But if you find things that are developmentally appropriate and appropriate to your kid that has scary things in it, multiple studies have shown that this teaches them coping skills. It teaches them how to handle being afraid, um, like from the moment, like I guess that's a coping skill. And in some cases, it teaches them this is what we actively do, not just how we feel and how we handle it mentally. But, you know, if this scary thing happens, this is what we should do. And it does it in a way where they can handle it. Um, and this the whole thing where it's like we can't we can't let our kids watch this because it's too scary. And the outrage of every time something comes on TV at a time where your kid could be watching, you know, 11 p.m. And how dare you? Um, part of the things people say about it is, you know, my kid is too scared. My kid will be traumatized. None of which has been proven to be true. Or my kid could start behaving differently, like Austin talked about on the you know satanic panic episode he did. Again, there is zero evidence of this. Um, the stuff we assume will be scary to kids is probably scary to us as the adults. The kids aren't the ones going, this is too scary. They shouldn't put it on. The adults are the ones going, this is too scary. Um, like, how many movies do you remember loving as a kid? And then you watch it now and you go, oh, shit, this is scary. I don't remember any of them. Like, a lot of it. A lo- um, Goonies. Goonies is scary as fuck. Um, Sleeping Beauty. The dragon is terrifying. Like all these things that I remember from childhood as being just normal. Now you go out and go, oh, my life experience has told me that this is not a pleasant thing to be looking at. <laughs> oh, God, like Ren and Stimpy. Yes. Yes. Kids process things differently. They don't have the experience to know what they should be afraid of. And this is actually important because where did we initially learn what should scare us? Unless you had a terrible childhood, you likely learned it from TV and movies and books, where you had a safe distance from whatever was happening. These are not the kids who end up traumatized. The ones who end up traumatized are the ones who have to experience these things in the real world first. Whether that is at age two or age 12, if they don't have the coping skills for this, they end up fucked up. Not every kid, but a lot of them. Um, One of the things that was suggested to parents who are worried about this is sit and watch them with your child. I know. It's like a novel idea. Sit and watch them with your kid. Talk about them afterwards. If your kid gets too scared, say to them, hey, do you want to pause this and we'll come back and watch later? Because there's also psychological evidence that if you don't finish a movie or a book, it can actually fuck with you. Um, it gives them a, it gives them control to give them the option to turn it off, just like it gives them control to look at a, a DVD cover and go, I don't want to watch that. And, but you need to sit and watch it with them and talk about it and monitor their behaviors and po- like, what would you do when this hap- if this happened? Things like that. And one of the studies that backed up this whole idea is that there was a group of kids, kindergartners, who were shown photos of worms. And then they were shown a scary movie about worms. Now, there's, you know, a group that was shown the photo and a group that wasn't. The group that was shown the photo had a way lower fear reaction because they had some kind of understanding of what was going on. They knew what worms were. So these, this is kind of reflective of if a kid sees a situation beforehand and has it explained to them and discussed with them, if it happens to them in a different context, they are able to handle it better. Then we got preteens who are more likely to seek out horror movies than kids and teens who are more likely to seek them out than preteens. It's interesting to note that the top three reasons that these ages do this, according to a study from the early 90s, was the thrill, the rebellion, or the gore. The thrill seekers are the ones who typically just watch it because they enjoy it. These are the ones who we should actually be pretty cool with them doing it because these are the same kids who would probably otherwise climb onto the roof of the movie theater. Like, I definitely did not do any time. 
I actually hated it. I did it to impress a boy. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid of heights. But like the thrill seekers, they could end up doing this in lieu of doing something that's actually dangerous. Then there are the rebels who they may not even want to watch the movie, but their parents said no. And so what else are they going to do that their parents said no to? Oh, God, that was the best way to get me to do something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there are the gore seekers, which are the ones you have to kind of keep an eye on. Now, not all gore seekers are going to be violent. But there is a connection between the ones who like the gore and violent tendencies. That said, this is not the movies cause this. This is the movies are reaching into a part of their brain that has a predisposition for this, which is not the majority of people. Boys, shockingly, especially there for this purpose. Girls are more likely to be watching it because they like the happy ending aspect that all these scary things happen and then somebody that good wins. Boys who seek out this graphic horror often do so because of uh, who do so because of the gore relate to the killer more often than the ones being killed. Oh God! Like all the people who talk about the Saw movies, it's like I saw Jigsaw. He's so intelligent. He's so smart. Look at him. It's like well, no, that's a different thing. It's I relate to him is different than wow, he's a genius. Two different things, which I'm actually going to talk about that too in a little bit. And then there are those who love violent cartoons, which is a whole different <laughs> level. I love them. Now, the ones who I'm talking the fully violent, the ones that pop up on YouTube kids that make the news kind of violent, not the Bugs Bunny violent. Okay. Um, the ones who sit there and think it's hilarious. And I don't mean, again, not the Bugs Bunny kind, the graphic violence that reflects reality. Those ones show signs of psychoticism. Neur- uh, neuroticism and sensation-seeking behaviors. Again, not all going to become ki- killers or anything, but the fact that they find the gore itself funny and not the whole situation is what they're focusing on. This might be one source of that stupid-ass meme that says people who like horror movies are more likely to be psychopaths, which is a gross misinterpretation of this and any other data I'm going to talk about. Firstly, psychoticism and psychopathy, two different things. Secondly, this was specifically about cartoons, not horror movies and even when we get into the horror movie stuff it it the the meme has a picture of the nun and it's like people who enjoy horror movies are more likely to be psychopaths there is no connection there it's people who enjoy this specific kind of horror movie for these specific reasons often have more indicators of um psychopathy or of psychoticism that the movies can turn on they can flip the switch but it is already there I feel like if we had, like, one, like, message we'd like to leave for everybody from our podcast, it is, do not get all of your information from memes. Too many people do. It's ridiculous. It's, yeah. it Well, it's easy to get your information from memes. You don't have to look something up. And because it's shared with you by a friend or a trusted relative, you think, oh, cool, I can trust them. They know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, except for in very narrow cases, though, you don't need to worry about your teens or anybody else watching horror movies. And if you have the kind of kid you need to be worried about, you already know you need to be worried about this kid. It is not suddenly he comes home and he's like, I'm going to stab everybody because I watched Halloween. No, he's already been thinking about stabbing everybody. Hello, mother. Yeah. If your kid suddenly starts calling you mother, please worry. And if you are worried, like I said, one of the reasons kids engage in this stuff is to rebel against their parents, which is why it's important to actually introduce them to them this early and sit there and watch or read or whatever with them, because that tells them, A, we're on the same page with this, and B, you can come talk to me if you get freaked out. Then there are the thrill seekers. These are people who are more likely to take risks in early adolescence. 
Like I mentioned, some of them get the thrill from the movies instead of doing the dumb thing. Some people do both. But wouldn't you rather than watch the scary movie? And then as people age, the amount we study this goes down because obviously we only distrust kids. But there have been some studies which were done largely in the early to mid-90s when horror was, if you ask me, way more graphic and violent than it is now. And if you go back to the 70s, it's more graphic, more violent, and more naked. Nowadays, you know that if somebody is naked, A, this movie's going to suck. I mean, I'm talking about in the first five minutes. Yeah, it's like... And B, she going to die, because it's always a she. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can judge like how good a horror movie is on how many minutes it takes before you see a boob. If yeah. it's sub 10 minutes, it's probably not a good movie. And that's modern horror movies, though. Ones from the 70s, it doesn't tell you that as much. Yeah. It's still a little bit, but movies have gotten actually... like Carrie is the one exception. Movies have gotten less graphic and less violent... If you really, really think about it, um, I think the difference is that really now we can show blood and they couldn't before. It's. I think it's also uh, it's better shot than it was in the 70s. Yes. We are able it's, to more effectively distance like, ourselves in a way. It's, it's 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 without being as gory, it can seem more visceral just based mm-hmm. on the better sound and picture quality. Um, and then back then, we also had a lot more slashers than ghosty type films. And a lot of these studies focused on slashers, which is actually why I'm not going to get into gender differences too much, because honestly, the ways the studies were set up pissed me off because it was only slashers. Well, who was the killer in a slasher movie nine times out of ten, if not more? Uh, it was a, a a man who'd been wronged by women. Yeah. And so they're like, women are more afraid during these movies. No shit. They're the victim throughout. But if it's, you're talking about a ghost, that, I mean, even if the ghost does trend male or female or whatever, it's not as realistic. And I have a feeling that the reactions would be closer. Now, I'd also be curious to know what would happen if you watched a horror movie, uh, one of the very rare ones where the slasher character was a woman attacking men. It's Friday rare. the 13th, the first one. Isn't that what happens in Jennifer's body, too? Oh, yeah. Jennifer's, except she's very supernatural. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh, God, lo- Jennifer's body is one of those underrated movies that I feel mm-hmm. pe- more people should watch. So we're going to get into the theories of why we react to them the way we do. Now, we usually hear again about the dopamine and blah, 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 which, like I said, is a very small part of it. To the point where almost no articles I read mentioned it. And if they did, it was actually only in the context of people with severe anxiety. So one theory is the beast within. This gives the idea that everyone thinks our niceness is just a facade and that we go to horror movies to appease the beast that exists in all of us to keep it from actually acting out the things we know we shouldn't. That sounds not... That sounds like the people we need to worry about. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like some Nietzsche bullshit, and I'm not here for it. Um, and then there's kind of what you brought up earlier about Jigsaw. There are the people who relate to Jigsaw which are the ones you have to worry about. And they are probably also there because of the beast within. But then there are the people who are just so fascinated, to, even to the point of being impressed by the bad guys, which is me a lot of the time. Uh, Hannibal Lecter. Impressive. Yeah, you can't think, oh, that guy sucks because he doesn't. He's evil and amazing. These are the ones who walk away remembering the bad guys because they're more interesting than the good guys. They are still rooting for the good guys, but they're like, damn, yeah. I want to learn more about this character because we are so far removed from the world that ga- that character lives in is that we want to figure it out. It's a mystery. We want to know why they do what they do. It's also why true crime is such a thing. So long as we are distanced from it via a podcast or forensic files episode. Why are they the way that we are? That is that is the question. Then, of course, there are the sensation seekers or the thrill seekers. This group includes the people who are always looking for thrills or adventures, new experiences. They often have limited inhibitions and are very easily bored. They just want to feel 
something. They don't feel a whole lot unless there's a lot of sensory information being thrown at them. People in this category find horror movies thrilling and are less likely to feel threatened by the actions in the movie. People who are not this way, people who are low attention uh, sensation seekers, don't like the movies as much in general because they are overwhelmed by the fear that's happening in it. But another theory that's in line with that one is that we all like the idea, the idea of having thrilling experiences happen to us, but we don't actually want to have them happen to us. We all want to do something exciting and interesting, but we don't want to die. Yeah, like everyone's like, oh boy, my zombie apocalypse plan. Ha ha, this is great. And then we have an actual pandemic and it sucks. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have the levels of empathy, like was mentioned with the kids. Now, this is interesting, as some studies have shown that low empathy results in higher enjoyment. Others have shown that high empathy results in higher enjoyment. There actually is no solid evidence one way or the other. Now, Austin can tell you, my empathy level is exhausting. Like, it's part of why I'm no longer a teacher, because I felt everything all of these kids felt all the time always. And I love horror movies, but I also have some friends who are lower empathy and they love horror movies too. Yeah. I probably love them more, but I'm also, I'm also, you know, dangerous. You are very dangerous. She jugs to gesture when she talks and she'll forget that she's holding a kitchen knife sometimes. I and have done this. That danger. is true. <laughs> it actually seems to come down how the, to how they defined empathy. Excuse me. <laughs> Now, and some of the ways they defined empathy was really stupid. It was like, these ones daydream more. What? I'm like, I have never been a big daydreamer um, because, you know, these are the ones who can put themselves in their other people's shoes more. No, that's not how that works. And hell, it probably even comes down to how they define enjoyment. But I'm not reading every scientific study for you. Sorry, there are lots. Um, but there was one discovery I thought made a lot of sense. It found that people with high empathy loved the danger and excitement they felt, but felt extreme satisfaction at the happy ending, or at least the ending that has some form of justice. Well, this re this, re yeah, this resulted in a high level of enjoyment overall, but they enjoyed the parts where the characters suffered way less than people with low empathy did. I will say, I, that is a trend in horror movies I don't particularly like. It's the like, oh, the false happy ending, and then it turns around to, no, just kidding. Now, I'm fine with it when it's clearly going to be a series. But then there are certain other movies, you know which one I'm thinking about, Yeah, where you don't know what happened to them afterwards. And granted, that was the point. You are not supposed to know what happens to them afterwards. You're supposed to leave a little fucked up from these movies. It's kind of like when a play doesn't have a curtain call, you leave all kinds of fucked up. And it goes back to the whole idea of if you don't finish a book or a movie, sometimes it can fuck you up. So people with high empathy may not have high, as high of enjoyment out of these movies. It doesn't mean that they didn't like the movie. And that's the other thing. Enjoying and liking, not necessarily the same thing. Because I can say I loved Get Out. It is one of the best movies I have ever seen. I can't say I enjoyed it. I mean, is there anybody on this earth who sat through Parasite and went, man, I really enjoyed that? No. I, I do have a coworker who was like, it's like, I wonder if I could just start living in the walls at work after seeing Parasite. The squirrel like, lives there. Squirrel lives there. <laughs> Live with the squirrels. And the need for affect. This is a less studied aspect, but one that is recognized as part of this. Uh, the need for affect is basically the idea that people will look for interesting and positive experiences and, and avoid negative ones. Part of the reason this is hard to study, though, is when you think, okay, they're looking for happy and positive experiences, you're thinking they must be looking for comedies. But everybody finds something else, something different to be a positive, enjoyable experience, which goes back to the notebook. People 
get actual like positive feelings from watching things that make them sad. Kind of like you were saying earlier, like I go eat my ice cream and listen to my sad music. There is something that's positive about that when you're in that state. So the need for affect, it is very hard to study because somebody who actually gets enjoyment and has positive feelings from horror movies is going to have a very different reaction than someone whose need for affect comes from watching Adam Sandler. It's kind of like the core memories from the movie uh, Inside Out. Where... Oh, that movie messed with me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good a, a good and succinct explanation of it, too. Kind mm-hmm. of. Um, and then another idea is that we use these movies to work through our own fears. Uh, Malcolm Turvey, director of film and media studies at Tufts, says, quote, horror films can put us in touch with what we're really afraid of, which are socially constructed fears. Part of what one marvels at is how cleverly the filmmakers are using the vehicle of the horror genre to attack real world issues, unquote. Um, It's kind of like the idea that dreams let us work through our problems, except for in this case, someone else is telling you, no, no, this is the problem you need to be working for. Stare at it and think about what you did. Again, get out. Oh, God, get out was so good. Uh, And of course, then there is the dopamine idea. To be honest, like I said, showed up in very few articles that I read. We're always told this is the big one, but it's really probably not. That's because it's not about the movie. It's the way you feel after the movie. It's the catharsis, which doesn't necessarily require a horror movie for you to achieve it. You can watch any movie, really, and have this dopamine release. And horror movies don't necessarily release more dopamine than any other movie. As long as the movie has some kind of level of intensity to it, once the catharsis happens, the dopamine's coming. And also people release dopamine and react to it at different rates, which makes sense in the level of enjoyment people get from horror movies. But I have a feeling if we were to like put little like those wires on their brains. Yeah. yeah, the electrodes. We put wires in their brains during the movie, it would show very different things than if we just talked to them afterwards. An interesting thing I want to drive home from for this is that for people with anxiety, this is where the dopamine really comes in. Unless you give them a trigger warning, and yes, there are studies, both that I'm going to link to and that I'm not because they're not directly related to this, that back up that giving a trigger warning actually heightens anxiety and makes, in this case, the movie kind of less enjoyable because the whole time you're waiting for this one thing to happen and you're really anxious about this one thing that's going to happen compared to other groups they studied who were not given this trigger warning. And all three groups that they studied, uh, there were people who had this as a legitimate trigger. They reported higher enjoyment of the film. And we're less bothered by this one instance, basically. So basically, trigger warnings are unhelpful, unscientific, and just kind of there to make some people who are not actually affected by it feel better. It's interesting. Um, there's another study that is not re- relevant to this, where it's they studied people with PTSD and the effect of trigger warnings. And trigger warnings heightened their anxiety and made them feel worse about themselves because, oh, so this is my identity. I am my PTSD. And here's the thing. I am part of the population that trigger warnings are supposed to help. And they fill me with anxiety. The concept of them, the fact that people think they need to protect me, fills me with anxiety. And I've only found one group that's willing to even discuss this because everybody else is like, but it's right. It's right. I'm like, I'm not saying you're doing something wrong. I'm not saying you're trying to be hurtful. I'm saying you need to do some research. And I'm sure there are people out there who are helped by it. But 
people like me who aren't, we're not allowed to say anything because people get really mad. But many people with anxiety are actually comforted by horror movies. Um, they provide distractions from real life problems. They activate your body in a way that is similar to light exercise, which is provably good for anxiety. It's also a form of, quote, of what is called distress tolerance, which is to react to negative anxiety by watching horror movies. I did phrase that really badly. Um what, according to Dr. Ali Matu of Columbia University, is, quote, finding a way to better tolerate the fear that you're experiencing by distancing yourself from it, creating different emotions, and engaging your nervous system in a different way. So you are retraining your brain to feel differently about what you're watching. Kind of like part of why I like dark comedy so much. It's taking like awful situations and they're making jokes about it, mm -hmm. which kind of makes it more palatable. He also says that depending on how you're using them, if you're watching movies over and over, it's more of the distress tolerance if you're doing it on your own. But then there's also exposure therapy. And he actually does use kind of like something similar to horror movies. Um, like if he's got someone who's afraid of clowns, they'll watch the same clown clip over and over and over until they get bored with it. And people who experience anxiety that is triggered by certain things, this is exposure therapy for them. And the thing he brings up is like, if it becomes too much for you, turn it off. Go watch How I Met Your Mother. He actually does cite How I Met Your Mother. Go watch something else. Come back to it later. You also don't have to rewatch the whole movie. Just watch the part that bothered you until you become more comfortable with it. Or you'll start to associate horror with Ted Mosby, which you, which you should. should. He says, quote, the beauty of movies is that you can watch it again. When I work with people who have a fear of clown, we'll watch certain scenes over and over again until people become sort of bored with it. And that he also mentions that basically this is the one thing that exists that is around us all the time that we can use as a therapeutic technique on our own. Wow. All year round, this is available for you. You can watch a movie over and over until you become comfortable with whatever you're watching. You can also turn it off, which is another thing that we don't have access to a lot of the times. You can walk away anytime you want. You can come back anytime you want. Unlike, you know, if you have a triggering incident at work, you can't leave. But if you go home and you're like, okay, this thing from work really freaked me out. I'm going to watch The Devil Wears Prada 20 times. Please don't do that. <laughs> Meryl Streep will come after you. Yep. Um, and then Glenn Close will be mad at me for getting them mixed up. So, I'm actually kind of afraid Glenn Close is going to come after me now. It's like, how dare you mistake me for Meryl? So in short, personality probably has more to do with enjoyment of horror movies than the release of dopamine does. You do not in general need to worry about people who watch horror movies. They are not more likely to come after you in the night. And if they are, you should have been worried about them already. There's going to be other warning signs. Yes. It's not going to be, I watched Chucky and now I'm going to put on a pair of overalls and stab you with my arm not bending. You just need to be aware of your own abilities to handle things. And that's, that's how horror movies work. And Austin and I love them, probably because we are both just leaning into the psychopath part. Yeah. I think we both have more empathy than we should. It's really obnoxious. I yeah. hate it. Be being empathetic sucks. We do not recommend. No, no. Um, Like being an unfeeling bitch like I was in high school is so much easier. Yeah. <sighs> are you ready for some questions? I'm ready for questions. Will this be on the test? Exposing kids to scary things can actually help them in the long run. That's a tough one. I'm going to say no, because then, like, if your teacher scares a kid, that's like, well, you told me. Yeah, no. No. Well, it's one of those things where it has to be a safe and controlled environment. Yeah. Um, and actually, I told you I was afraid of the Goosebumps books. If somebody else read it to me, I was fine. And my teacher read them every day and didn't bother me. Horror movies don't actually create psych psychopaths, but can influence those who already have the tendencies. Yes. Horror movies, particularly without trigger warnings, can be good for anxiety. Yeah. 
And dopamine may not be as important in horror movie enjoyment as personality. No, that's too prevalent of a myth. They can't address it. <laughs> the dopamine thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there is a lot of argument over personality types as well. And so that's why they I didn't get there was one that was based on personality types. That was actually interesting. But I was like, you know, these are self-reporting personality behaviors and not, oh, I'm an INFJ or whatever, um, which was not the personality types I was looking at. But yeah. Oh, God. Myers-Briggs is like, I heard, heard the best description of these personality tests. They are horoscopes for smart people. It's the Barnum effect. Yeah. Which is not to say I, I am an introvert who likes to judge people. <laughs> um, but I could have told you that without having letters. Yeah. All I, I can only remember mine because it's NP, which is kind of funny. All right. Um, so we had a, I don't know. My brain is really tired. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're both exhausted. You might be able to tell this episode. Who knows? So where can people find us? We can be found at onthetestpod.com. But the easiest ways to reach us are via social media. We are... Facebook on at facebook.com slash on the test pod. We are on the test pod on Twitter and on the test pod on Instagram. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Podcasts. And basically, if you're listening to us, you know where you can find us. Yeah. And we're on everyone. So if you're telling a friend, be like, hey, they're on everything. And so have them listen to us. And please, please, please rate, review, subscribe. Tell people to listen to us. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. But don't leave us a rating if you're going to be a dick, because that sucks. And also, you made it this far. Yeah. It's like you've listened to an entire episode. You can't be deciding now. It's like, ugh. They were awful. I'm giving them one star. I mean, I know I burped into the microphone earlier, but I think okay. you're okay. Um, and if uh, you've gotten through hearing me talk other times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So please, I've done way worse things on microphone than burp. Not when I've been around. What have you been doing to our microphones? <laughs> we need to have a talk. So on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.